Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, WAG listeners, it's Allison, reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Candleland supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Candleland shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes from some of our podcasts. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. For $2 a month, you can become a supporter and do your part to ensure we can continue making this show. And we really like making this show for you. Basically nothing costs $2 anymore. You could like get a bag of candy, a locker at a public swimming pool. I've been honestly trying to think of something that cheap and I'm not getting far. So sign up for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com slash join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. This episode of Wag the Doug is supported by Small Batch Dispatch. This holiday season, why not give someone the gift of beer? Small Batch Dispatch is a Canadian craft beer of the month club sending out at least eight unique beers from eight unique breweries every month. Shipping is Canada-wide. No matter where in Canada you are, you can give and receive the gift of beer. You can get 10% off your next purchase. Just go to smallbatchdispatch.com and use the promo code DUG. That's D-O-U-G, DUG. Last week, Ontario's Auditor General Bonnie Lissick released her annual value for money audit of the province. So you may have heard our last episode about Ontario News Now, which is the PC government's taxpayer-funded propaganda video service. Well, if that shows how the Ontario government wants us to see them, then this report is kind of the opposite. It allows you, as good as well as anything, to look past the government's talking points and see how they're actually running this province. AG reports are really, they're special because by law, Bonnie Lissick's office has the power to compel basically any information from the government. So the report scrutinizes a fleet of government programs from healthcare to prisons to commercial vehicle checks and makes a bunch of recommendations that later future year Auditor General reports will follow up on and uh, analyze whether or not the government actually listened to this year's. So it's an, it's an annualized shaming. I mean, this this show at best is a monthly shaming, but, but it's not nearly as, as comprehensive. It's a 1,500-page-plus document in four volumes. So that places it longer than uh, Lord of the Rings. Although this does not, that I found, contain maps of Middle Earth. Uh, although it does have maps of Southern Ontario. So we spent the last few days digging through this tome for you listeners. And now we bring you 10 Things We Learned from the Auditor General's Report. I'm Allison Smith, publisher of Queen's Park Today, and I recently received a Christmas card from Doug Ford that says, Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays, best wishes for a happy and prosperous new year. I'm Jonathan Goldstein, news editor for Canada Land. I covered a Ford family Christmas party in 2013, and that was a terrible human experience and wonderful reporting experience. Uh, and uh, the food was okay. And this is Wag the Doug, a podcast about Doug Ford.
Do you want to say the first thing? Yeah. Uh, so before we get to the port, here are some other updates from Queen's Park where Doug Ford is apparently adopting the, the characteristic qualities uh, of a Timbit or so we've heard. They just told us that there's going to be no school tomorrow because Doug Ford is having, you know all the teachers, right? Doug Ford is envisioning in his mind, he's probably thinking about Timbits right now. And I'm probably telling him, he is a Timbit himself. So perhaps one question is, like Tim Hortons, which despite its awfulness to mediocrity and all of its products and outputs and branding and everything, can Doug Ford actually, like Tim Hortons, in spite of itself, unite the country? Well, yeah. Can Doug Ford unite the country is the sort of the question I've been asking myself because the premier himself and various other news outlets and columns have been uh, trying to persuade me that he can. When Ontario Premier Doug Ford met with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau last week, some expected sparks to fly. But the two held a surprisingly congenial meeting with the Premier of Ontario calling for calm and national unity, a contrast to Trudeau's meetings with Western premiers. And I think of a very interesting way to watch like political image making happen in real time. Um, basically, since the federal election, which saw no liberal uh, MPs elected in Alberta or Saskatchewan, there was kind of a big fright about national disunity and a need to bring the country together now that it's so divided post-election. And Doug Ford very quickly sort of stepped into this space uh, as, you know, Captain Canada, as people are calling him, saying that he was the one or he is the one who understands, you know, the tough economic situation in uh, out west in Alberta, and, but also is like really good friends with Quebec's premier. And he alone, you know, has the ability to sort of bring everyone together. They hosted a meeting of all of the premiers uh, last week in Mississauga at the airport Hilton, where everyone sort of got along very well, talked about all of the things they have in common that they want from the federal government, which really ultimately just was, let's ask for higher federal cash transfers for stuff. Oh, well, that's smart. Yeah. Has, well, no one ever thought to ask for that before, I guess. No, I don't think so, no. Well, which is, I mean, not a unique ending to a premier's meeting. Ford wrote an op-ed in the Toronto Star about this. He called the moment an unprecedented opportunity for him to bring the country together. Eye rolls don't come across audio, I'm sorry. I'm just interested in this because is it the type of thing where you just say... Here I am uniting the country. And then that becomes so like then you are the, now the unifier from, you know, simply mm. sort of scheduling this meeting, probably shaking some hands and talking to people in the background. But how do we ever measure whether or not Doug Ford united the country or not? Um, what do you think? I mean, anytime you have to actually measure something, Doug Ford fails. I mean, that's, I guess, what we'll be getting to in the, the bulk of this episode about the Auditor General's report. Doug Ford succeeds to the extent that he can talk and say things. And those things needn't be uh, an accurate or reasonable reflection of reality. But he's, he's decent at talking. I mean, he's charismatic as far as most uh, Canadian politicians go. I mean, back at City Hall when things were going to shit, which was quite often, uh, you know, he just basically look ahead to the next election and keep talking about the next election, how they're going to win the next election, how they're cam basically an ongoing active campaign for the next election. It kept him buoyed a bit. That's where his headspace is at, generally speaking. It's about what is the next thing to win? What is the next sphere or political sphere he can conquer after moving from being a city councillor to being a mayoral candidate to being a mayoral candidate almost nearly a second time to PC leadership, to premier, and when his premiership is going badly, there may be some vacuum at the top of the federal party. Yeah. I mean, what it's doing also is if he's off doing this Captain Canada thing, he doesn't have to eat it for the stuff that's going wrong at Queen's Park, including uh, high school teachers striking, right? Now, that's Stephen Lecce's problem. Doug Ford can just almost not ignore it, but he doesn't have to be the one answering questions about it if he's focused on mm -hmm. something else really publicly. 
Um, you talk about the vacuum, potential vacuum mm-hmm. at the top of the Conservative Party of Canada. A lot of our listeners might know that Andrew Scheer, after you know losing the election, um, has now been has a big target on his back. Many prominent conservatives want him out. Those include. Corey Tanike. He was Doug Ford's campaign manager at the last campaign in 2018. He has already been appointed his campaign manager for the next provincial campaign, which would be in 2022. And he created a new organization last week or the week before called Conservative Victory. It has the explicit goal of getting sheer booted from the leadership and for holding a large and open leadership campaign to replace him. One of the public faces of this organization is Jeff Ballingall, who is the founder of Ontario Proud, who helped to defeat the Win Liberals. Whether or not they're completely in the specifically Doug Ford camp, I think is a little unclear, but they certainly have helped Doug Ford along the way. Mm-hmm. And to be clear, Captain Canada is distinct from Mr. Canada, the guy covered in Canadian flags who shows up to Ford events, right? Yes, I think okay. so. I think Captain of Canada is a, a metaphorical post. <laughs> I don't know if we've ever talked about it on this show before, Jonathan, but basically ever since Ford got elected premier, there was like rumblings or just, you know, many conversations off to the side about whether or not he'll ever be prime minister or whether or not he wants mm-hmm. to be. And the other thing that there has been, you know, rumblings of ever since Doug Ford got elected or, or more accurately ever since he really like plummeted in the polls was that there might be, you know, caucus in his cabinet. There's the potential that they would try to oust him before the next election because they want to stay in power. Most of the PCs in Ontario don't really credit Doug Ford with getting elected. They think that Mm -hmm. the PCs were going to probably win no matter who Mm -hmm. was the leader, and they don't want to lose their seats because of him, right? Mm -hmm. Should the Ontario Liberal Party uh, have any chance of, of, you know, picking up steam before the election? That was uh, TBD. But he can't get kicked out of the Ontario PC party leadership if he leaves it. That is true. It's sort of the ideal exit plan for him. Why would he face another election that he has a good chance of losing when he could keep uh, failing upward? And of course, the first thing everyone says when they talk about whether or not Doug Ford could ever be prime minister is, oh, he doesn't speak French. But I feel like in this like political moment we're in, even internationally, standards and norms mm-hmm. are being broken all the time. And I feel like having a prime ministerial candidate that doesn't speak French or potentially prime minister that doesn't speak French doesn't seem like too big of a leap of something that could not happen in Canada in the oh, next yeah. five years. Or even, yeah, prime minister who, you know, in Doug Ford's case, seemed unaware until fairly recently that there were significant uh, French language populations outside of Quebec, let alone in the province that he actually runs. So, I yeah, I don't think that I guess that it would... could happen. It could happen. Yeah. It could happen. What else is going on at Queen's Park? The high school's mm-hmm. teachers went on strike last week for mm-hmm. one day. They're going on strike again this week for one day. High school teachers haven't gone on strike in Ontario for over 20 years. So it is actually pretty notable that it's gotten to this point. Basically, what it kind of looks like is no mass strike is going to happen before Christmas because there's really only a couple weeks of school left. But it really seems like the bargaining is not going well uh, with the government on both sides. I think they're both been, you know, kind of bargaining getting in the media a lot uh, or through the media, which you're kind of not supposed to do. But they're they're at a stalemate, that's for sure. And the possibility could be a mass strike in the new year when they'll have a bit more leverage as opposed to, you know, everyone's breaking for holidays anyways. Well, yeah, I remember when my junior high went on, well, it was just my junior high, when teachers went on strike in 1997, I was in junior high. My mom took me to, ended up taking me to Stratford for the first time, and I saw Jonathan Crombie, the son of former mayor David Crombie as Romeo. But more interestingly, when we came back to school, it turned out students had broken in over the course of the strike and sort of set the school on fire. That was interesting. It smelled like smoke for quite a while. A lot of artwork went up in flames. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode of Wag the Doug is supported by Small Batch Dispatch. This holiday season, why not give someone the gift of beer? Small Batch Dispatch is a Canadian craft beer of the month club that sends out at least eight unique beers from eight unique breweries every month. These aren't just beers you can pick up at the LCBO. There are offerings that you can only find at the brewery and sometimes include exclusive releases. Looking at the stuff that they have had and have offered in previous incarnations of their various monthly packs, there's some pretty cool stuff here with some pretty cool labels that sounds delicious that I would be very happy to receive. I mean, I'd be so excited if I saw, if I went to the LC- my and I live in Parkdale, as far as LCBOs with craft beer selections go, it's pretty good. But man, if, if these things were on the shelf, like, you know, if I saw a spicy raspberry 2.0 from something called Stonehooker Brewing in Mississauga, wouldn't even think twice and put that in my basket right away. And I mean, better yet, with Small Batch Dispatch, you don't even have to go to the shelves because the beer will land right on your doorstep. Shipping's Canada-wide, so no matter where in Canada you live, you can give and receive the gift of beer. Use the discount code DUG to get 10% off your next purchase. Go to smallbatchdispatch.com and use the promo code DUG to get 10% off your next purchase. I'm still thinking about the spiced saison, Mexican chilies and raspberry. So I'm more familiar with like the city of Toronto where, you know, there's an auditor general as well. And I'm pretty sure there's an annual report, but mostly the big reports looking at different agencies, boards, commissions, different aspects of the city, those sort of come out on a rolling basis throughout the year for the most part. But if I understand it correctly, basically the auditor general's office is entirely geared towards producing this one annual tome. It's the main project, I would say. Um, But they do also do special reports on various Mm -hmm. things. But they have to be requested by either a committee or the government. In some way, shape, or form, they have to be proven that there's a need for them to produce this extra special report. Whereas the annual ones come all the time. Now... They don't analyze literally every single thing in government because that would be impossible. They kind of choose. I think this one had 17 value for money audits in it, um, if I'm if I'm correct, something like that. Um, so they still have to kind of narrow the scope. And I think they look at various different things every year. One of the big things a couple of years ago was the quality of cement being used to pave the highways. They're not going to just write about that every single year. They're going to follow up on it a little bit later. But and then mm-hmm. kind of go different directions and choose different things because I mean fifteen hundred pages is a lot, but imagine trying to do everything. And it's like it's it's super daunting at first, but once you get into it, it can be very entertaining and even laugh out loud funny. So may I start with my first of our ten things? Sure. Okay. So I'm going to get over the hump of just talking about what the actual big headline out of this report was, because I feel like it is worth acknowledging. And that is basically that the PC party's environmental plan is useless and built on a sea of lies. This is interesting in a way because I think it actually backfired for the PCs, uh, something that they had done last year, which was fire Ontario's environmental commissioner. With that gone, they sort of rolled the environmental watchdog's role into the Auditor General's office. And therefore, the Auditor General put out one of the whole volumes is about the environment, which wouldn't have been the case before. Her report gets a lot of te- more attention than the environment watchdogs ever would have. Uh, so this is going to be something that they can't ignore this criticism of, basically. The criticism being that there's no way in hell Ontario is going to meet its Uh, emissions reduction targets with the program that it put in place. They had said that they were going to reduce GHGs by 30% below 2005 levels by 2030. But what the Auditor General found out when she kind of looked at how the Environment Ministry had put together this plan 
was that they had like double counted various ways that emissions mm-hmm. were going to be reduced. Uh, they overstated some projections. For example, they said that there was going to be this, you know, chunk of reductions based on the fact that uh, there will be 1.3 million electric mm-hmm. vehicles on Ontario roads by 2030. Right now, there's 41,000. So it seems with even the you know biggest sort of push from industry and the government getting to 1.3 million by that time would be hard but of course the pcs cut all of the ev subsidies that the liberals had and you know in some cases tore out existing electric vehicle charging stations so they're de-incentivizing people to buy electric vehicles which means suggesting there'll be massive cuts to emissions because of the use of them, factually inaccurate, according to the Auditor General. Another one, they said that uh, emissions were going to go down by, again, just a certain amount, uh, 2.3 megatons per year because of natural gas expansion. So they were going to They already have a program that they're trying to set up that's going to get more natural gas lines to new communities. Uh, But according to the Auto General, the staff at the Environment Ministry kind of said, you know, it's unlikely this people are actually going to switch over to this. You can't count this in your plan. And they or it is going to be negligible, I think is what they told them. The PCs didn't like that answer, so instead they pulled a number from uh, an industry group funded by natural gas companies and slotted that number in as the the reduction they would have got. So the plan is bunk. Environment Minister Jeff Urich has kind of like basically acknowledged this last week. He he says that it needs to be tightened up and that it was always an evolving plan. We have a plan. The Auditor General didn't say it was terrible. She said it needed to be tightened up. So suggesting that at some point they're going to make it way better within the next two and a half years that they're in government, although really not saying any way that they're going to do that. Although Doug Ford himself uh, was asked about it on Friday and he... <laughs> took a different tack than the environment minister, and he said it was a great plan, uh, that he's confident the province will meet its targets. Um, Mm. So the idea that Ontario, which was, you know, once kind of a leader when it came to really cleaning up air quality and making progressive decisions when it came to the environment is is really long gone. And I think people knew that ever since the PCs got elected. But now this report really just has the hard data that we're not going in the right direction. Number two, following on that, uh, is the bold headline, public transit spending in the plan not likely to result in significant emissions reductions. As we kind of all know, if we live in Ontario and have ever taken transit, transit planning in Ontario is is largely broken, but it was kind of eye-opening to see in the Auditor General's report that Basically, the way everything is going transit-wise, even with additional investments in transit, the difference in overall emissions would be negligible because the, over the basically paradigms in which we build transit are so fundamentally fucked, uh, which, which is not, not, not incidentally the, the terminology used by the auditor's report. But there are many passages in this, this document which you could imagine um, fundamentally fucked appearing. Um, so what's the deal that just so, the transit is producing too much emissions on its own? No, I mean, so according to the report, the government's plan includes a commitment to spend an additional $5 billion on public transit, including go transit expansion, subway and relief lines. That's, you know, pretty good. The ministry estimates the spending will reduce emissions by 0.1 megatons in 2030. Okay. But that number is based on was based on an internal Metrolinks memorandum from December 2015, which estimated the potential emissions reductions based on, you know, what was going on at the time from, like, plans to expand and electrify go transit system of commuter trains. But the bigger issue, as it turns out is that initial estimates for Metrolinks indicate that additional capital spending of $45 billion for public transit across the greater Toronto and Hamilton area will lead to, at best, a minor increase in the share of trips taken by transit from 14.2% in 2011 to 14.7% in 2041. Basically, the places that should have transit, that are sufficiently dense for it, don't get transit because there's opposition to having it there for political opposition for one reason or other. There are places that aren't dense enough that do get transit, 
for political reasons. So even it's if not... we spend billions of dollars more, mm-hmm. we're not doing it in the right way, so therefore people aren't going to stop driving their cars. Well, for number three, if you want to launder money, check out Ontario's horse racing industry. So one thing the province of Ontario has like completely failed or seemed to ignore during the like eight years I've covered it is money laundering. Findings from a dirty money report, which was commissioned by the British Columbia government uh, earlier this year, was released earlier this year, found that $40 billion in criminal cash was laundered in Ontario between 2011 and 2015. That's actually more than BC, a province that's actually been taking this seriously over the past few years. But Ontario has just done very little to even acknowledge the fact that, you know, billions of dollars is getting laundered through real estate and likely casinos and luxury cars. Who knows? It could be happening everywhere. We don't know because nobody's trying to figure it out. What the Auditor General did find is that the horse racing industry in Ontario, um, and also actually in all of Canada, but it really is just predominant in Ontario, is not accountable to any regulatory body to monitor its operations and how much cash it's paying out to people that gamble there. The AG pointed to Woodbine Waste Track, which is here in Toronto. It paid out a bunch of different prizes uh, over the past year and a half uh, that were over $10,000, which should that have been from a casino, they would have had to report it to FinTrack, which is like a federal agency. But because it was racehorsing, apparently we don't pay that like There's just no rules. So I'm not trying to slander Woodbine. The AG really did actually look into all of the different times that they... um they paid up more than $10,000 and found that nothing looked too suspicious there. But this can't be the type of monitoring that's left up to an Auditor General report that might look at horse racing once every 15 years. The government needs to be taking this stuff more seriously. Number four. Wiener dogs, are you ready in three... Two and one, go! Wiener dog races. They're off in the first heat of the wiener dog races. Apparently that's a thing. Which way to go? They're all over the place. A few of them are out of bounds. And we're waiting for somebody to be first to cross the finish line. Unfortunately, the auditor did not audit the wiener dog races themselves. It, it comes up in the context of, uh, as Allison said, there's a shit ton of horse racing tracks in Ontario for some reasons that are probably pretty easy to explain looking historically, but right now are very confusing. Um, and the auditor wrote that, well, they reached out to senior management at all the racetracks to discuss opportunities to diversify their operations in order to generate additional revenue streams. Some racetracks hold wiener dog races, concerts, or tractor competitions, but most of these events generate either insignificant income or losses. So apparently wiener dog races are not especially profitable. The Auditor General has determined that. So uh, basically... The auditor general is like, yeah, hey, why don't you, you know, why don't you find other ways to make money? And they're like, no, horse racing, subsidize this, <laughs> and um, that's, I guess, basically how this province works, um, because despite the diversification into wiener dog races, which once again the auditor general's report lists as among the as first of the alternate uh, realities, they don't seem to be interested in doing that. It's one of those weird like things in the, you find in the report where it's just like, oh, that's a thing, such as. Elsewhere, also in the gaming sector, there's just a casual mention, just like there's a casual mention of wiener dog races. <laughs> there's another place, a casual mention that, oh, the Ontario Lottery and Gaming Corporation connects personal information of customers, presumably casino customers, for business purposes. That can include a customer's name, birth date, address, gender, height, race, eye color, hair color, <laughs> and credit card information, and banking information. It's not exactly clear why um, the apparently the gaming corporation is collecting people's eye color. Presumably it has to do with the facial recognition for um, at casinos, especially around, you know, including around like self-exclusion. You can actually, if you have a, a, a gambling problem, you can ask to be banned from a casino. And But uh, it's like, oh, it collects all that. And not, not more surprisingly, um, although it is, though that information is uh, stored in their databases and encrypted, which is good, um, there are apparently seven people at the Ontario Lottery and Game Corporation who have unrestricted access to all of that information, which, as the report notes, is not in line with best practices for security. They also found they have an overly narrow definition of personal data, such that basically when they have a, an image of your face, you know, as 
facial recognition does, it converts that photograph into a mathematical formula. They don't consider that mathematical formula to be uh, personal information. Um, yeah, so so your your face is not counted as personal data on you. So that's a uh, that's also concerning. Like the, yeah, you find these little things in the report every once in a while. There's like, huh. I'm glad there are three paragraphs about that, but I have so many so many more questions. I don't know. Casinos are security states anyway. That's all. I just want to point to the NDP's reaction to the to any talk of horse racing in mm-hmm. this report. Yeah. <laughs> I just thought it was pretty funny. Wayne Gates. So the NDP actually has a horse racing critic, which is supposedly to keep the government in check when it comes to how well it's operating horse racing, which again, just like showing how much weirdly this industry has power here. Yeah. Wayne Gates. He's like more mustache than man. (laughs) Absolutely. So asked by iPolitics about the potential of money laundering being a problem in horse racing, Wayne Gates said, the people I've met in this industry are hardworking. They're very honest. They're dedicated to the industry. They eat, sleep and breed horse racing. It's like, okay. But what if there's money laundering? We're not, we're not doubting whether or not they breathe horse racing, but... I get the sense he'd enjoy The Crown, or at least enjoy those episode, episodes that everyone else finds boring. Number five. This one really disturbed me. It has to do with regulations and safety monitoring when it comes to commercial vehicles, like AKA mostly tractor trailer trucks, of which there are tens of thousands of them on Ontario roads all the time. And unfortunately, lots of them are not getting inspected. Over the past two years, there was a 22% reduction in the number of truck inspections, even though the actual number of trucks on the roads are increasing. And 46% of accidents involve tractor trailers. They are more likely to be at fault in accidents. And of course, they are big machines that are more likely to kill someone if they crush your little Kia. The Auditor General found that in the past 10 years, more than 1,100 people in Ontario have died in accidents involving tractor trailers. Another is like 46,000 were injured. Uh, and there's been a $2 billion social cost to this if we talk about healthcare, police, uh, insurance uh, for people involved, et cetera, et cetera. But mostly, like one of the government's main responsibilities is to keep people safe and they're just letting untested uninspected massive trucks just drive around number six if you make it down to pages the pages in sort of the mid 750s range in the first volume like once you get to the back you'll find some surprising things like adult classified no no not adult classified ads. Uh, you'll find like an org chart for the auditor general someone um that you know one Thing that directly reports to the auditor general as opposed to the other way around is a senior advisory panel. Like, okay, members selected by the auditor general based on the capacity to provide the auditor general with the highest quality advice and matters pertaining to the panel's mandate. Okay. The, uh, then, you know, you start skimming. It's like, okay, Tim Beauchamp, former director of public sector accounting board. Okay, makes sense. Deborah Deller, former clerk of the Legislative Assembly of Ontario. Cool. Ah, oh, Deb Deller. She's she, great. Sheila Fraser, former Auditor General of Canada. Makes sense. Then Peter Mansbridge, former chief correspondent for CBC News and anchor of The National. That raises more questions than it answers. What relevant expertise does Peter Mansbridge bring to uh, the Auditor General's office? His bio is expanded a little bit on the Auditor General's website, where, among other things, it notes that he is the former two-term chancellor of Mount Allison University and is currently the president of Mans Corp Media Services, where his work includes documentary film production. Uh, So far as we know, Mans Corp Media's one production has been his homemade podcast, The Bridge. So um, perhaps that provides hope for uh, others who uh, have sort of homemade and or semi-professional podcasts, that they too may uh, have the skills and or profile in the future to advise the Auditor General on public accounts. Is that a paid post? Do you know? Ooh, that's a good question. I, you know, you'd think of this being the Auditor General's report, it would say very (laughs) clearly one way or the other. Value for money audit of the Auditor General's board. uh, Call for one. Oh, yes. But I wonder if he's doing like, do you think it's like communications work? Like, is he like, I would imagine. What other skills does he have? Yeah, like you should analyze, you should, you should value for money audit these things and not these ones because it'll like 
I don't know. Or you should just speak with a very clear voice with much gravitas. <laughs> uh, yeah, so it turns out that, I mean, it's not a big deal. The panel's members get $300 per half-day meeting. And uh, if conference calls are required, they get 75 bucks an hour, which is pretty good. Uh, certainly a step down from from CBC, but likely a step up from Manscorp Media. So uh, <laughs> glad he's keeping busy. Number seven, seniors in the province's long-term care homes are not being fed or really taken care of properly. This is part of, you know, a much bigger problem uh, in Ontario that has to do with the complete underdevelopment of, of long-term care homes over the past few decades. Uh, and, you know, it's gonna it's getting tough. The wait lists are long and they can't keep these places staffed up because it's, to be honest, a crappy job and they're understaffed as it is. What the Auditor General specifically looked at was food and nutrition, uh, which is an interesting angle to come at, I think, actually. Mm. She found that because of understaffing, many meals are not being served on time and that the seniors in these homes aren't getting help. For example, like opening, uh, say they had like a pudding or something, like no one's opening it for them. They can't get at it. They don't know what the food is, so therefore they don't eat it. A lot of the food is over-processed and like full of sugar and salt and doesn't have enough fiber. So, you know, older, ill people can't necessarily digest it. Tons of people in these long-term care homes are dehydrated. And what this is really resulting in is emergency room visits because... People aren't being fed properly or are dehydrated. That's more resources being taken up to solve a problem being created by a failure to care for people properly. And in kind of one of the most egregious uh, parts of the report, Lissick found uh, an occurrence where a, a long-term care home was serving liquid eggs to its residents that were more than three months past the best before date. Oh, great. Yeah. Number eight. Okay, okay, so this this is my favorite stuff I found. Anyone who has ever dealt with the court system in any respect will tell you that in Ontario, at least, it is so broken on so many different levels. Beyond even just questions of, like, justice and equity, which are kind of the most important, important things of a justice system, but just, like, on the most basic level of administration, it is not, like, Anything else you will likely ever encounter, you know, in this century, it is still, uh, as the Auditor General's reports notes, an overwhelmingly paper-based system. There were 2.5 million documents filed in Ontario courts last year, of which 96% were on paper. That's 2.4 million paper documents, not pages, just just documents. I actually can't think of anything else in society that is still in this day and age so reliant on physical paper. Most provinces' courts, you can just go on their website, or some provinces' courts, you know, you can go on their website, just look up, find out the status of something. If you're interested in something in federal court, the federal court is a great website. You can look up a case and get remarkably detailed information about what's going on. You want to know about a lawsuit in Ontario? Well, you got to go to the courthouse where it was filed. Uh, in the case of Toronto, it's uh, you have to go to the 10th floor of this office building at Queen and University. you got to get in line for one of two really old PCs. Hopefully, they're both working. Usually, one of them isn't. You, once you get on, you have 10 minutes, and let the someone behind you, which there often is, to do a search. It's very slow. Try to track down the case, maybe. You get the barest information on there. You can print out the page of the information, but half the time the printer is not working. So you write down the, the number of the case, the case number. You go across the hall. You fill out a little slip with all the information. You hand it to a clerk. They will charge you 10 bucks, but often the debit machine is just not working. So sometimes they'll waive the fee or they shut it down for the day. You get the papers in a folder. You can't take the folder out of the room. You can photocopy it, but the photocopier uh, only takes cash. Oh, and you can only you can't pay for the file in cash. You can only pay for the file, I believe, in debit or credit, but you can only photocopy in cash. But in any case, what was really entertaining about the support isn't so much that it gets to the bottom of why all this is the case, because people have 
explored that, written about it for years. I mean, different legal groups, academics, like this is a long-standing issue in Ontario. But the fact that the Auditor General's office itself was frustrated by this. The fact is, as Alison was saying earlier, you know, basically in theory, the Auditor General has basically unrestricted access to anything they want. In the case of the court system, they found they couldn't. They should be able to, in theory, they strenuously argue throughout that their legal mandate gives them the right to access pretty much anything. But in practice, they were just as fucking frustrated as anyone else, as any <laughs> journalist filing an FOI or trying to get any information and encountering all the same things. And goodness knows if you're in the court system, you'll presumably encounter all this as well between just weird, arbitrary delays in getting information, changing explanations for what they can and can't share. The Ontario Court of Justice and Superior Court would give them different explanations for why they couldn't do things. One court would say, okay, here you can have this document. And the other court's equivalent document this would say, no, that's secret. Things like child protection cases, um, you know, they, they would say, Things like legally, you can't publish the names or identities of any of you know the people in these cases. And the, our general's like, well, of course we're not going to publish the names or identify anyone. And they're like, nope, nope, we can't give them to you. Can't let you see them, these things, even in redacted form. And so this document, hundreds of pages, it's again and again explaining these ridiculous difficulties where you just you just see that the auditors are just banging their heads against the wall in a way that you don't usually encounter in these things, in a way that they're clearly not used to be having their efforts to investigate a body be frustrated in this way in so many different ways. And you read it, it's like they're experiencing the court system for the first time. Although you also read it and they said like, oh, no, it was exactly this way when we tried to do this thing in 2008. And it was like this when we tried to do it in 2003. And nothing is basically changing. I mean, I would call it the way it's written to be passive aggressive, but it's more that's like that's understating it. It's more it's like it's very openly dismayed and confused. There's a part where it just quotes, like it's like basically ironically quotes the Chief Justice of the Ontario Court at the September 2018 opening of the court ceremony, talking about you know, how the system is becoming better and more transparent. And in the next paragraph, it quotes the same Chief Justice talking at the 2019 opening of the court ceremony, talking about how proud they are they're open and transparent. And then the next paragraph, it just juxtaposes that with, well, here's what they told us. Like, you, you know, basically, you cannot have these records. The explanation basically is that judiciary is independent. That makes sense. You absolutely do not want and should not have governments, even the Auditor General, second-guessing judicial decisions from the perspective. Like, you don't want politics touching the judicial decisions. But as it turns out, a lot of the court administration, even things like scheduling courts and scheduling trials and the usage of courtrooms, that all falls within the, the purview of the offices of the Chief Justice. And they're basically saying even these administrative things you cannot look at. So while the auditor points out, well, we've looked at, you know, in the past, you know, operating rooms at hospitals, and we found out more efficient ways they could and should be used. We want to find out there's more efficient way to maximize courtroom space. And they're able to figure enough stuff that well, the problem almost certainly is. The chief justices basically said, no, no, that's entirely our thing. And that sort of starts getting at an answer. Why is the court so slow? Well, there's no outside accountability, it seems like. Uh, and the fact that they basically even the auditor general's office uh, is just the runaround the same as like any journalist is kind of amazing. Number nine. I read a little bit of the court section, Jonathan, that you were talking about. And one of the things they note off the top there was that most courts are only being operated for, I think, 2.6 hours a day yep. or something. And the goal is to have them operating 4.5 hours a day, mm -hmm. which also seems like not much. Um, but so they're only operating at about half of their potential, which yes. their mediocre potential uh, is not being reached. Some courts just didn't open some days for no clear reason that the Auditor General could suss right. out. Although time in court tends to move differently. Like you, you, you like again, hour will feel like three hours. Like you could have watched The Irishman in that time. And you look at the time and like, oh, shit, it's only 1030 in the morning. But anyway. <laughs> um. But what this led to is something like 70% of people in Ontario's prisons and jails on any given day are actually people that are awaiting trial or awaiting bail. That's fucking wild. So the system is completely clogged with people who haven't been charged. Um, who have been charged but not been convicted. Charged, but not convicted of any crimes. So that's thousands of thousands of people. 70% of 70%. people in jails, <laughs> Ontario jails, have not been convicted. 
Right. So that stems from the crappy court system. But the real impacts of this are that, you know, these facilities are not safe and there's not a lot of programs to, you know, help the people there uh, rehabilitate or, or what have you. The report surveyed 17 correctional institutions and 71 percent of them says they don't track assaults against staff. So if you work at in corrections, there's a high likelihood, it seems like you're going to get hurt or assaulted by people there. And your employer is not even going to write it down. That same group of corrections facilities also said, asked what their number one challenge they face is, and it was staff shortages and people not turning up for their shifts because, I mean, it's never going to be a fun job to work in corrections, I would hazard. I actually have a family friend who does it, and I know it's tough. Um, That said... It's the province's job to make sure it's working as well as it can be, especially as they know the population of inmates with mental health alerts on their files or just inmates in general increases, which is happening. Um, At the same time, they're also still putting many of these inmates with mental health problems into segregation for like hundreds of days at a time. Um, I think it's really interesting, actually, like, that since the PCs took power in Ontario, corrections has actually become a pretty big blank spot. It was a big file under the liberals who wanted to reform the segregation policies. They had experts writing reports on it. Um, And since the PCs have come into power, we've kind of really stopped talking about it. But in some ways, that's kind of like something like long-term care homes. Prisons are easy to ignore when you aren't looking. Number 10. We kind of knew parts of this, thanks to the Toronto Star, but this is a another uh, pretty standard type of thing. So most criminal matters in Ontario, almost all, the overwhelming majority, are dealt with by the Ontario Court of Justice. Currently, they have a whole bunch of locations around Toronto. Uh, the provincial government, for several years now, has been on, had this plan to consolidate them all into one building, one new building, at basically on Armory Street, just behind Toronto City Hall. They hired one of the best architectural firms in the world, actually, Renzo Piano's uh, company. Uh, company He decided, like, uh, the Shard in London. It's not going to be that great, but it's pretty neat. So, and the, according to the auditor's report, well, the office of the Chief Justice of the Ontario Court was pretty happy with how all the planning for that went. But, turns out, no one actually asked the Chief Justice of the Superior Court what they thought. The Superior Court, their main courthouses are basically on either side of that. No one really asked them, like, hey, what do you think about, you know, putting all the criminal courts or almost all the criminal courts directly across the street such that every single person charged with a crime in Toronto will be within a one block radius. So a day before it was announced before in the 2014 budget, um, the Ministry of the Attorney General got in touch with the Chief Justice of the Superior Court for the first time, and they weren't really happy that, that this was all breaking news to them. As they said, they weren't consulted once on this major capital project. So the Ministry, basically, the Superior Court was like, okay, we could we get some family law stuff in this new courthouse? It's a pretty big building. And uh, the Ministry is like, yeah, you know, let's look into it. Then they decided, no, we can't, we can't fit that in. Then in July 2015, the Chief Justice expressed concern about this, quote, truly surprising development, and it was not the outcome her office had been, quote, led to believe. So that so they frustrated the Superior Court there. Toronto police were also not happy that, like, oh, shit, the ministry has decided to put all the criminals or alleged criminals or potential criminals in this one place. You'd think that would be the sort of thing they would have spoken to the police about ahead of time. So, um, like, what's the potential problem with that? Well, a few. Different, I mean, there, the police raised concerns about like could bring rival gang members and other violent criminals to a single court location. But I think I think the bigger issue is just the the logistics of it. I mean, it's it's a very busy area. Mm-hmm. Superior Court is right there. It's basically the two most popular places in Toronto for protests are the U.S. Consulate, which is right there, and Toronto City Hall, which is also right there. Basically, yeah, it's just the actual like logistics of the congestion of it, of people being ferried in and out, of having to come from all corners of the city to this one location. But uh, 
I mean, yeah. it's kind of like the Metro Links and the planning thing, right? Yeah. It's not not so different. Oh no, and it's similarly that the Superior Court says like they don't even like where the province is building the courthouses. I doesn't say it's political reasons, but like it says like. You know, the, the province built a whole bunch of new courthouses and new city in other cities, and the chief justice of the peer court or the op- people from the office said, you know, we had not been, they'd not been consulted on those decisions about where, and that from their point of view, there are more pressing needs in other places, but they're not building new courthouses. So yeah, basically, actually, the transit comparison is an excellent one, where these decisions are being made for different, possibly political reasons, and uh, it's not actually serving needs. It's the three-month-old expired liquid egg of a courthouse. (laughs) That was Wag the Dog, a show about Timbits. I'm Jonathan Goldsby. You can find me on Twitter at Goldsby. I'm Allison Smith, and you can find me on Twitter at, at @queensparktoday. Our producer is Kevin Sexton, and our theme music is a remix by Nathan Burley. Our podcast is listener-supported, so if you like what we do, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash CanadaLand. Hey, WAG listeners, it's Allison, reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Candleland supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Candleland shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes from some of our podcasts. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Candleland supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. For $2 a month, you can become a supporter and do your part to ensure we can continue making this show. And we really like making this show for you. Basically nothing costs $2 anymore. You could like get a bag of candy, a locker at a public swimming pool. I've been honestly trying to think of something that cheap and I'm not getting far. So sign up for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.